You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. And Triple R is where you are. Greening the Apocalypse is the program you are tuned into. Bushy's my name. I'm sitting opposite Jed McCartney. How are you, Jed? I'm well, thanks, Bushy. This evening's guest is Jane Morton. Jane is a clinical psychologist who worked for 30 years in public sector mental health services. She is the lead author of a book on acceptance and commitment therapy, and a number of consultants report to and a number of consultant reports to the Victorian government. Five years ago, she went into semi-retirement to campaign on the climate emergency. She is convener of Darabin Climate Action Now and active in the Australian campaign to declare a climate emergency. She is instrumental in convincing the Darabin and Moreland Council to declare a climate emergency. And uh, we welcome her to the studio this evening. Thanks for coming in, Jane. Hello. How are you? I'm well. We're going to get down to brass tacks, and it's pretty heavy duty. Um, we might have a chat a little further down in the show about that path from... Uh, Psychology. I mean, unless you want to quickly tell us now that the what what pulled you from psychology to climate activism? It was basically an invitation to a talk um, done by the local climate group, Darabin Climate Action Now, and out the back was somebody I knew from Dave, David Spratt from university. Yep. Uh, well, actually, it wasn't him. It was one of his um, leaflets. But it was the year that the Arctic ice went into dramatic decline. And yep. being a graphy sort of person, when I saw that exponential curve, I became worried. I got involved. Yep, you understood what that represented. I understood what it represented and I got on the mailing list as David Spratt and Philip Sutton were writing Climate Code Red, where a group of us got it chapter by chapter, mm. scary chapter by scary chapter. And so really right from the start, I was convinced there was an emergency. Actually, the, one of the things that persuaded me the most was reading that that David and Philip were in discussion with climate scientists and they were freaking out in yeah. their own private chat rooms. That was something that was very convincing. Um, so, But I laboured on being a psychologist and an activist on the side for quite a few years and about five years ago I just decided if we only had ten years to act that really working on climate was the thing I wanted to do, yeah. especially having kids. Yeah, well, this this is a thing that we can both speak to as well. Yeah. Um, recently, climate experts have started to talk about a new category of th- threat, which is not just dangerous, and it's not even catastrophic, but they're using the word existential, um, a threat that could actually, uh, as they say, annihilate most people on Earth. Uh and this, I think, is what has brought you into it because, as you see it, we're, we're not getting all of the information, are we? We're kind of getting these vagaries and, you know, it's all right, we'll, we'll, we'll switch to a Prius and everything will be sorted. Um, but what, what was... Let's talk about why it is important to now declare a climate emergency in the current, in the current era. Hmm. Well, maybe if we start with the existential risk because I think it's a classic yeah. example... Mm. I mean, scientists now have added this new category, existential, which t- is worse than catastrophic. Yeah. But on an informal poll of university-educated people visiting my house, 
who I asked, you know, what does existential mean? They say, oh, is it something to do with existentialism? So it's actually a classic example of, um, of scientists trying to convey something really, really serious and yet it's not getting through. So the booklet that I think we're going to talk about that I wrote, it, was, yep. it came out of my concern that scientists were trying to tell us something really, really important, mm. like that we're running a risk that human civilization could be wiped out and that most people could die. They're trying to tell us. Yes. And yet the message is not getting through. And it's partly because I think sometimes they don't talk that clearly. You know, they use scientific language that people don't understand. They talk cautiously. They put a lot of uncertainty into things even when they're pretty certain. They stress the uncertainty. So there's things about the language. But there's a a blockage at the translation level. Mm. So we're climate activists, NGOs, climate... um, commentators yes. um, needed to be translating scientist language so ordinary people can understand, there's a blockage because a lot of those people believe what is actually a myth, a psychology myth. Hmm. So they will say quite out loud, fear doesn't work. Like I've heard climate scientists say quite recently. Yeah. Um, they say fear doesn't work. Well, in messaging, we use fear all the time. Yes. You know, if you want someone to stop smoking, you put gory pictures of cancerous lungs and gangrenous toes onto your cigarette packages and you say, keep smoking and there's a risk you'll die, but you can quit. Yeah. Um, If you don't wear a seatbelt, you might end up with a head injury or a paraplegic in a wheelchair, but you can wear a seatbelt. Yet every kind of public health campaign runs the same kind of pattern, which is... It's called high threat, high efficacy. They describe the threat really clearly, make it personally relevant to you, like it's you that could be affected, and then they tell you how to address it. They all run the same pattern. It's because it works. So this, this idea that fear doesn't work is basically a myth. Yeah. It makes me quite wild, as you can hear. And that was the motivation to write the booklet. So I think that's the problem. Scientists are trying to tell us stuff, but this myth that fear doesn't work is preventing people who know from saying it to the people who need to know. And, and you can't rely on, uh, like you, um, I'm a, a graphical sort of person and, and, and on, in your, your book, uh, brochure, there's, on page 8 there's a magic graph that, that maps uh, temperature rise over 20,000 years, I think, is the scale, roughly. Um, might be a little bit more. It shows average global temperatures over yeah, 20,000 years. Yeah, and, it, you know, it's, it's come up and it's come down and it's sort of bumped along a bit. And then in the last, well, I guess, 50, 100 years, it's gone vertical. Mm. And, and when you put that against a, a time scale, you know, so the scale on this graph is 20,000 years, there is no time no. to do something because this is going vertical in a very, very short period of time in terms of global life. And, mm. uh, and, and no one's getting that message out to people. No, well, this is something we, we've tried to convey for quite a, quite a number of years using the idea of a safe climate zone so that for the whole of human civilization, temperature is only really varied by about one degree. Mm. And we're right at the top, like as we hit one degree mm. just recently, we're right at the top of where human civilization has ever been. Now, as we go towards 1.5, you know, which people are now talking about is somehow safe, or it's the least worst option, or two, if we get to two, we're at double what it's ever been in the whole of human history. Mm. If we get to four, 
we're quadruple. But the thing about four is that that's the point at which Van Snellenhuber, who is the former head of the Potsdam Institute, former advisor to Angela Merkel and the Pope, yep. he says at four degrees there's only a carrying capacity for a billion people on Earth. Yeah. That's an estimate. Like you have, you know, it's a very hard thing to calculate exactly. But, yeah, he says around there, you know, human civilization breaks down and probably most people die. Mm. So... Uh, and yeah, th- those that's, that are not dead are fighting over the bit that's habitable. Well, that's right. They're, they're down mm. in the Antarctic in a fortified community. You know, goodness knows how they're surviving. <laughs> but, yes, anyway, like I, should, I think we really should mention this booklet is actually called Don't Mention the Emergency, yeah. question mark, um, because of this idea that, that there is an emergency but you mustn't tell people. It's um, available through climateemergencydeclaration.org. Mm. If you Google Jane Morton and don't mention the emergency, it comes up pretty easily. Yeah. So that's what the booklet we're talking about. And, and it's, I mean, it's written basically to dispel this idea that you can't tell people how bad it is. I mm. mean, it's, it's basically trying to convey the idea that, well, I think a lot of people, pretty much everyone now agrees we need emergency action. And yet, when has there ever been emergency action when you didn't tell people there was an emergency? Like, when have you ever got people to evacuate a town when you didn't tell them they needed to evacuate yeah. the town? It's just insanity to me. It almost seems like an infantilising of uh, the broader <clears throat> society, doesn't it? It's almost like the things you don't tell your kids because they don't need to hear it, so to speak. But mm. it's been an assumption made that, yeah, that I, people I, wouldn't cope with such a massive idea. I, I wish people did agree that there was uh, a... Um, climate change and B, that it was an emergency because I think um, we, uh, we being the three of us in this room, are easily conned into believing that there's a lot of people out there who believe this and I don't think there are. When, when I talk to some of my friends um, who, you know, don't think a lot about this stuff, they're, they're just completely unaware. And, but um, I think that's part of the psychology though. I mean... Mm. People have written all sorts of psychology books about climate and, you know, and some of it contributes to the fear doesn't work thing because they go, oh, you, t- you make people too scared, they go into denial. Well, people go into denial when they don't know what to do. Like when there's nothing they can do, well, of course, then they want to avoid. But the other really important part of the psychology, which I think is relevant to this about the emergency, is that we're basically herd animals. Mm. So we go where leaders lead. Um you know, we're, we're like um, a, a herd of, of deer. You know, we think we can smell a predator. We look around, we can't see anything, so we check what's the leader doing. Yeah. Well, the leader's still grazing. So, okay, it must be okay. It's, mm. it's, it's not because we're dumb. It's just, you know, naturally, when there's main, main, mainly when there's danger, you see other people responding to danger. Mm. That's one of the ways you know there's danger. When you look at leaders and leaders are just having stupid arguments about lumps yeah. of coal mm. and nobody is mentioning that there's an emergency, well, you assume there is an emergency because mm. surely they would tell you. Mm. So I think that's where I th- we think that the, the leadership piece is the key to the psychology. If leaders, like even in really scary times, if you've got someone saying, look, you know, as well, Winston Churchill's speech is the classic. Yeah, I was going to say you know, Churchill, yeah. It, it's not a matter of having hope exactly. It's not a matter, matter certainly of knowing that you can win. It's a matter of a leader saying really clearly, we face a really serious threat here and we need courage and we need to work together and we need to address it. Hmm. And I will lead you. I'm confident this is the way to go. Come with me. That's completely what we're lacking. Yeah. We've got people understating it. We've got people you know, trying to pretend it's not even happening. 
and very, very few prepared to say, this is an emergency, we should drop everything and focus on this. You know, if, you, if your stove catches fire in the middle of dinner, you don't keep on, you know, discussing who's going to take the kids to footy tomorrow. No. You've put on, put the fire out. That's emergency mode. Mm. And that's the essence of an emergency response. Mm. I feel more is, is maybe the greater issue as well that the way, even in the, the most effective working uh, dem- democracies at the moment, the way leaders arrive at their post is very, very different to the way all other herd animals allow a leader to ascend and, and probably, moreover, very different to the way a lot of uh, traditional human societies allow hu- leaders to ascend. Um, it's it's not entirely earned the position of leader anymore. It's kind of bought, or it's <laughs> yes, or bought. it's well, yeah, and and so yeah. I mean, it's probably obvious and overstating it, but I mean, we, we it's not so much that we have a, a a problem with leadership. We just don't have a leader in in Western democracies at the moment. If you look around broadly, we we don't have anyone uh, who's willing to acknowledge the problem. Anyone who's willing to step up and inspire action against it. So. Um, so we, are, but if we consider that we are, it is time to declare a climate emergency. What, like, what does this mean and look like in reality? Because I mean, we're, we're here tonight talking with you, and you are part of the group in. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Was Darabin Council first? Mm, was Darabin first? Darabin Council declared a climate emergency um, with a group of approximately how many people were involved in this? Well, it came out of the campaign that a few grassroots groups started in 2016. The reef had just bleached that first time. It was a bit like the Arctic ice melting, I think, for a lot of us and and for a lot of the public too because you couldn't debate, you know, you couldn't deny that the reef was bleached and probably going to die. So we decided to launch this campaign to try and get the federal government to declare a climate emergency. It was partly about trying to shift the conversation. Yes. It was partly also to demonstrate that telling people the truth was working would work fine and it did you know when when we took that petition around people would go yes of course why hasn't the government done something yes of course it's an emergency so it was working fine and one of the things we we decided to try it was part of um trying to basically reach leaders and influence leaders um was just getting every candidate in every election Mm. to um sign a supporting statement saying i support the declaration of a climate emergency we were really just almost trying to shift the language. Yeah. We didn't expect it so to be inc- so incredibly easy to get people to sign up to this message, but it was. Yeah. And so the first thing that happened was in 2016, a whole lot of um, really quite influential people, including John Hewson, um, Carmen Lawrence, mm-hmm. um, Christine Milne, um, a whole lot of scientists, quite a few journalists, they all signed up to a supporting letter in The Age. And we had 20, 25 spots we thought we'd have to ring hundreds of people to get them to sign into this really strong message. Yep. We rang 26, 25 signed up. Yeah, who was the one who did it? No, no. But they, <laughs> they, they, had, they had a good reason. Okay. Like it, it was just to do with not lending their brand to stuff that they didn't control. It wasn't because they didn't agree. So okay. basically we had 26 out of 26 agreement. Yep, yep. Gotcha. So, so then we continued this into the Darabin Council. And again, same thing. We were really just sort of trying to you know, get people who might be influential within various political parties to just take a strong stand. But... We actually managed to get more than half the candidates in that council election to support it, including half of the Labor candidates, yep. a lot of the independents, all the Greens. And so when the council was elected, we had six out of nine okay. who had signed on saying they'd committed to um, to declare a climate emergency. And then 
a whole lot of other people joined us. It wasn't just Darab and Climate Action. Now there's a group called Climate um, uh, Council Action in the Climate Emergency Case. Yep. Anyway, C A C E. Yep. Um, so a lot of people hopped in at that point and just sort of really started, you know, encouraging them to take strong action. So yeah, in the very first council meeting, they declared an emergency, and they really have followed through in terms of like writing an emergency plan, rewriting their um, council priorities so that climate is considered, climate, the climate emergency is considered when making decisions. Yep. And they ran actually a very inspiring climate emergency conference. So, I mean, it, it, the thing that surprised us is that when you tell people the truth, it seems like things move very fast. Yeah. You know, like quite the opposite of what people say. When you tell them the truth, then it's almost like ever since then things have been running faster than we can keep up. Yeah, yeah. yeah we have to be direct. You have to be direct. And so and that from the outcome of that, you were saying uh, in the green room before the show that from that, that, from that little thing, big things grow, um, the Darabin model then fled, crossed the pond quite quickly to the US mm. where there was an uptake of climate emergency declarations. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Yeah, well, it first spread just to a couple of other councils who um, are nearby in Melbourne. But then there's a wonderful group in America called the Climate Mobilisation and they had been running this very uncompromising campaign to declare a climate emergency and mobilise. In their, The thing they were getting people to sign up to was to pledge to mobilise a World War II scale mobilisation. And they did amazing work, mm. actually, with Bernie Sanders um, during the primaries. And they got him to sign up to the whole World War II scale mobilisation thing and say some stuff quite publicly on TV. Yep. And they got it into the Democrats' platform. Not that anybody just about knows that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's in the Democrats' platform. Yeah. And to commit to having um, an emergency conference within the first 100 days of government if they won. Mm. But, of course, then Bernie didn't win the primaries. And then next thing, of course, they had Trump. So they were really, you know, looking for a direction of what to do in the Trump years. You can imagine it was depressing. Um, And they started basically what I think they call it city by city. Yes. And their cities, of course, are a lot bigger than our councils. So Los Angeles, Berkeley... And some counties have actually declared emergencies since then. Yep. Do you have an idea of which, how many municipalities or councils over? There? I mean, I, I, it's something like five or six. Yep. Is that California? It seems to be, it seems to be more. Yeah, it's yeah, mainly in I, California. I saw a thing on yeah. TV the other day. Yeah. LA uh, has committed to be uh, 100% renewable by 2030. I think it was. Mm. Uh, I think it was it is interesting to hear that sort of idea land well in California because if you actually. Uh, I mean, we're not buffered from news of the world anywhere anymore, any, but um, if you look at California where they've, they're a well-known state for earthquakes, yes. you know, especially in San Francisco, um, and also they've had those huge forest fires just out of Los Angeles recently, but um, all parts of California, um, a lot of those forest fires incidentally have come about because you've had long-term die-off of pines as a result of the pine beetle, which is now living right through the winter because the, the temperatures aren't dropping the same and killing it off and those sorts of things. So in terms of a state of, in the US that deals a lot with not necessarily existential crisis but large-scale crisis, I was interested to talk a few years ago to a guy who had um, spent a lot of time travelling the world, Darren Doherty, um, talking to people about regenerative agriculture and how to design landscapes to be... Um, more effective and he said broadly speaking in Australia we've got a very stable geology we get the odd bushfire here and there we don't get earthquakes we don't get major flooding on the scale that other places do and he so he said in terms of um, emergency preparedness Australia 
just lags behind, broadly speaking. But especially in Marin County in San Francisco, that's a place who... I mean, pretty much everyone in that city has emergency storage in their house for earthquakes and so forth. So it's of no surprise to me that the declaration of a climate emergency landed on those years well. I'm Joel Salatin, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio, greening the apocalypse on Radio 102.7, Free Triple R. Jane Morton is our guest in the studio this evening, a clinical psychologist who has moved into climate activism over the last five years and specifically is focusing on a climate emergency. Jane, uh, before we went to that track, we were having a bit of a chat about respected leaders or a lack thereof. Um, We were also talking about the excellent uptake of the emergency declaration in the city of Darabin, which then moved very quickly across the pond into um, various municipalities in California. so if, if we're looking at the idea of an emergency declaration, we need to look at strategies to increase that uptake, of course. Now, we were talking about our lack of respected leaders there there before, but you said um, one of the things we need to look for is trusted messengers. And we live in a, an age of increased scepticism. So what is it that we're looking for when we look at talk about trusted leaders? Who are they and what, what do the person look for from a psychology perspective in that trusted leader? Well, trusted messengers. Trusted messengers. messengers. There's a lot of pain and anguish in the psychology of climate messaging that goes into, you know, how do we craft a right-wing message and how do we craft a left-wing message, Mm. all that sort of thing. And yet what we know is that people are most persuaded by people that they trust, people like them. And you can have the same message given by a Green Tea Party person to the Tea Party, you know, um, that a climate activist might give. Mm. But the, the Tea Party person says it, they'll believe it. Yes. If some lefty says it, they won't believe it. And so right from the start, we actually have focused a lot on trying to find trusted messengers to all sides of politics. Yep. I mean, one of the interesting things is that um, defence forces and security analysts, they really get that it's an emergency and they don't have any problem with that language and they don't have any problem with, you know, when you identify a risk, you prepare for it. Yeah. So they're a really good group in terms of getting the message to the right of politics. Um, It seems like there's also quite a bit of movement happening with farmers, you know, who have just no reason to be voting for people that walk around with lumps of coal, (laughs) really. (laughs) Well, least of all because they're just likely to come in and start mining on the farm. Well, of course. Well, but but also they're destroying the farm. Yeah. You know, I mean, then people can put two and two together. They know whether... That these unprecedented droughts are coming from. There always were some, but not like not, not what, what we've got now. Mm. So, I mean, one of the interesting things, this this existential threat message, you know, it's sort of a depressing one, but if there's a silver lining in it, it's basically that one thing that left and right agree on is we don't want to die. Yes. So if people, I think, realised that what we're looking at is a risk that most people on Earth die... Mm. then the whole thing about values, the whole thing about crafting left and right messages, it drops away a lot. I mean, basically, you've just got to find a way to tell people. Yes. And you've got to find someone they trust to tell them. But if they once know that, I think that they'll act. I really think they will. Mm. Um, We spoke today... We spoke today uh, prior to me coming into the show and we had an interesting chat about this um, because... 
we were talking a little about the left-right um, rift in modern politics, especially in the West. And you were, you were talking to me about, um, I guess I'd describe this as an interesting hijacking of language because we keep talking about left-wing uh, values versus right-wing values. And I guess at the moment when a lot of people think of what is right-wing and what is left-wing, they don't so much think of the colour spectrum in between, but they think of that ultra-right, um, you know, neo-fascist and the ultra-left um, neo whatever the far left is um and a lot of the time people that means that people who are um sort of moderate progressives or moderate conservatives closer to each other get flung in they get flung out to the spectrum with those people and you were talking a bit about um the finger that gets largely pointed at so-called conservative thinkers and actors um, as being responsible for inaction on climate change yet as you point out one of the traditions or uh, the tradition of our conservation and environmentalism actually attributes itself to a conservative mindset in two areas. One that you spoke about today um, on the phone was risk aversion and the other one was also the protection of legacy. So can we talk a bit about that and how we perhaps try to grapple that message back so that we're not busily pointing the finger at one another for being ineffective or um, ill-effective? Look, this is one of the things that's interesting from my work as a psychologist because what I was working with was basically values-based change Mm. and... I mean, we never made a difference between, oh, you know, we're talking to a left-wing person, oh, we're going to work with values this way, and we're talking to a right-wing person, so we're going to work with values this way. Because the thing we always worked with was just um, how does this person want to be remembered? Like you say, legacy. Yeah. Um, I was working with suicidal people, so we didn't talk so much about about what do you want on your on your tombstone. But, but you know, like in the end, that's basically the question that people ask themselves. How do I want to be remembered when I'm dead? Yeah. You know, what do I want my life to be about? And in the end, I think most people all around the world, right and left, they basically want to be remembered for good relationships, yep. you know, good relationships with people that were close to them, doing the right thing and, and making a positive contribution. Mm. There's not a difference. And yeah. we, that's, I don't know on the phone, one of the things we're talking about is, you know, the idea of, you know, a midlife crisis or a midlife heart attack. You know, I think even the, the, the greediest, most selfish person, if they have, you know, a midlife heart attack and survive... Yeah. The things that they say is, well, I, want, I wish I'd spent more time with my kids and I wish I'd been a better person. Yes. So I don't think there's a difference between right and left values. No. And I think that the idea to preserve the planet, a legacy, a positive legacy, it's pretty much universal. And, yeah, the particularly interesting thing is conservatives because I, I think it's a real shame to use the term conservative, as scientists do, mm. and it's become quite conventional and acceptable, to mean underestimating risk. Because it's never what it used to mean. No. You know, conservative used to mean risk-averse, what it still sort of does. But when it comes to climate, basically underestimating the risk, understating the risks, not being clear about the risk is somehow called conservative. Yeah. Yet there's nothing conservative about it. You know, and, and as we were talking again, this was from earlier, um, if, you know, if an engineer understated the risk that a bridge would collapse or a plane would come down... Well, they'd get the sack. This is not conservative. It's not acceptable. And the only reason it seems to be somehow acceptable when it comes to the one and only planet that we have mm. is because of this somehow convention. Um, well, it's really because of the high, hijacking of the term conservative yeah. and the hijacking of right-wing thinking by trusted messengers who are basically lying. And That's thing- right, yeah. We talked a yeah. bit about that on yes. the phone today as well, about yeah. like, the very deliberate splitting of people through mass messaging and mass media. Well, it was a deliberate hijacking of at least half of the political constituency by trusted right-wing messengers 
who made a conscious decision to lie? Like, this is what we know, you know, that the fossil fuel companies did their scenario planning, went, oh, my God, this is really bad. It's not like they were dumb or anything or they didn't realise. Yeah. And then they said, well, what's our strategy? Well, we're going to lie. You know, we're going to fund think tanks and we're going to fund people who will lie on our behalf. But that's not a right-wing value. No. And that's the thing. I think in the end we can, we'll be able to peel these conservatives, real conservatives, honest conservatives. They're sometimes referred to... Like if you think of swinging voters, they're sometimes disparagingly referred to as doctors' wives. Yes. But what it basically means is people who are educated and ethical but maybe wealthy, mm. you know, they're quite capable of, rec- of recognising that they don't want the planet destroyed for their kids. Mm. So, you know, in the end, real conservatives, I think, will respond to the emergency message as much as anyone else. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR. We have had a bit of a discussion about just the bare bones facts um, of the heating climate on the planet um, and inability for leaders and our, more to the point, our so-called respected leaders to actually provide us with the truth. Um, we discussed a little bit about the psychology of bad news and um, some of the hijacking of language around it, but we thought it would be quite prudent to actually look at some of the really large-scale suggestions and ideas that people are promoting, um, some of which may be our... Yeah, paint us a picture of... We've got an emergency. We go into full-on emergency uh, mode. What's that going to look like? What are our activities going to look like Mm. around... Uh, let, let's just talk Melbourne, Victoria, <laughs> and okay. then move outward. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so look, I mean, the first thing is just to not forget that moving into emergency mode is actually a key solution. Yes. Because um, I think the climate movement's done a great job with 100% renewables and leave coal and gas in the ground. Those are nice, clear messages. And by repeating them a lot, they've actually got through, which is success. The idea that we actually have to move into emergency mode has not been repeated. Well, it's barely ever said. Um, so I think the first thing is just to really remember that that is a central part of the solution. We don't need to, as ordinary individuals, know every detail of what's going to happen or we don't actually need to plan it. We need to move our government into that mode and join them in that mode and cooperate and collaborate in that mode. So I can't say everything that the government would do if they move into emergency mode. I didn't even know everything Darabin Council was going to do when they moved into emergency mode. Um, you know, no doubt it would involve a lot of the things you'd see, say, in wartime. So it would involve a lot of regulation. You know, in times of emergency, you don't put a tax on cars and, and hope that people will build tanks. You just say, sorry, you guys, you're shutting down and you're building tanks. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't hope that people will drive less and say so you've got more fuel to use for the wartime effort. You say, look, sorry, um, but driving for pleasure these days, it's banned. Rationing. So rationing, regulation, you do the stuff that will make a change fast. So there'll be obviously a lot more of that kind of thing if mm. if we ever do manage to get the government to move into emergency mode. Yeah, indeedy. Um, it was just interesting. One of the things that I spotted here it talks about um, safe passage. Talking about safe passage is important. And um, one of the notes here is that... Um, there, as we reduce carbon emissions from burning fossil fuels, we actually break, face a brief spike in warming as the Earth loses the cooling influence of the pollution in the atmosphere. So again, things like that, that seems to me about one of the key little details um, in this entire message. But um, there's some massive, massive discussions, some of which we've had on the show, 
um, some of which we've covered before, but let's go over them a bit. First and foremost, emissions reduction is a big one, and we were chatting off air before about within that emissions reduction, it's not just enough to switch across our power sources but within that because of the high density of fossil fuels we've said this numerous times on the show a switch to renewables or other um you know wind solar etc is going to as you were just saying require um, some rationing of sorts with our very lifestyles but at the same time we're saying off air that there's potentially room in this for a reboot of some fairly incredible um or economic revolutions let's just say not least of which was reforestation and uh, regenerative agroforestry, regenerative farming, and one that I hadn't heard of in greater detail before, which is ocean permaculture. And this one uh, sounds like it's got a lot of promise, not least of which because the oceans are two-thirds of the planet. Can we have a look at what ocean permaculture means, Jane, in this, um, in this strategies? Could, could I just maybe backtrack one, a, yeah. little, a couple of steps? Yes. Um, I think, you know, like I was saying that, the climate movement's done quite a good job of talking about emissions reductions and most people people have got a fair idea about, you know, how that might look, mm. you know, with renewable energy, electric vehicles, more walking and biking and... Car share, like resource yeah, sharing. resource sharing mm. and, and, you know, probably realistically a, a simpler lifestyle, which is probably going to make us happier, not more unhappy. <laughs> you know, we don't have to change our iPhones every second year. Um, so I think that side of it is actually reasonably well understood. But in terms of messaging, I think the shift that we need to make is to always say zero plus drawdown, zero plus drawdown. Yeah, okay. Because it's people think the science is really, really sort of complicated. Hmm. But if you phrase it this way, it's not. So if you say, look, the earth, look around you, do you think the earth is already too hot? Yeah, people go, yeah, of course it's too hot. Hmm. So if it's already too hot, what do you reckon our carbon budget is? How much more can we keep heating it up? Well, of course we can't heat it up anymore. So what does that mean in terms of our emissions? Oh, whoops, we've got to go to zero. Well, mm. when? Oh, oh, we should be already there. So this idea that we've got to do a dramatic, immediate, precipitous decline in emissions mm. becomes clear as, lo- as soon as people accept that we actually are already too hot. The basic hot. maths of it. Whereas, you know, if we talk about 2 degrees and 1.5 degrees, this is something else we were talking about earlier, people just think it's like a couple more hot days. They don't realise that we could be on... Uh, an irreversible path yeah. towards the breakdown of civilization. So we should never talk about two degrees and we should never talk about 1.5. People have no idea that that is really serious. No, that's but right. If, but if you start from the earth is already too hot, then you can, you're laying the foundation for it being really clear, zero plus drawdown. You've got to stop making it hotter, but it's already too hot, right? It's like already, cool. So you've actually got to go backwards. And sometimes people say negative emissions, but what's negative emissions? No one understands that. Hmm. Drawdown, I think partly because of Paul Hawkins, people are starting to understand it. Yep. So that's the but new book by Paul Hawkins, was also called Drawdown. It's called Drawdown, yep. although he's confused the issues by putting emissions reduction stuff in, in amongst the drawdown stuff. Okay. But never mind, at least he's getting the term known. This idea that we've got to go backwards, uh, I think it's what some people say is, you know, when you're speeding towards the edge of a cliff, you actually need to not just slow down, yeah. You need to reverse. Yes. You know, or at the very least stop. But you need ideally to stop and reverse back from the danger. Mm. So, or um, Michael Mann actually uses a minefield. He says, you know, it's like we've wandered into a minefield. We need to back out. Yes. <laughs> Not go wandering around. Just, you know, we don't know for sure, like when the tipping points tip. Yep. Like some of them certainly already seem to be tipping. Yep. So we don't wander around in the minefield setting off more. That, you know, could be completely irreversible. So zero plus drawdown. Um, now, the misleading thing that people are getting fed... Like people are getting alarmed, I think, because of the 1.5 degrees report. 
But the misleading thing that people are being fed is that we have a remaining carbon budget. And mostly, you know, people's eyes just glaze over this concept anyway. They don't understand the whole thing. But they go, oh, that's good. We can keep on burning stuff for a bit longer. Mm. And, oh, this is 12 years is in there somewhere. Oh, does that, that probably means we can just keep on burning stuff for another 12 years, does it? Yeah. Um, that is a terrible message. Yes. So <laughs> you said before, I'm going to take you to task a little bit here, mm. because you said it's not up to us, it's up to government. But oh, government, I didn't mean it like that, sorry. <laughs> but government's not going to do this. No, so no. if we can't paint mm. a clear picture mm. for someone, like, Jed, this is what it means to you. Mm. You've got to get your house 100% renewable. So you've yep. got to stop using as much electricity. You've got to get more solar panels. You've got to put a battery on it. Mm. And, and everyone in your street, neighbourhood and city has to do, do so. Do the same. Yes. And so that's what you have to do. You have to stop driving your car uh, as much as possible um, and limit it to, you know, a number of kilometres a week and you have to do X, Y, Z. I mean, I think that's the point we need to get to to be able to give people some real tangible feel for what zero plus drawdown means because we're, we're still talking in this sort of ethereal big picture and people still don't translate that to me because, you know, I, I've, I've done some of that. I've got you know, solar panels on the roof and I've got solar hot water and I feel good. I've done something. I haven't done enough. Yes. I, I know that. But but I, th- I think the thing that I, I suppose I was trying to get at there is, like, I think sometimes people are afraid to campaign on the emergency because they can't explain everything. Like, they can't explain all the science. They can't mm. explain, you know, exactly how, you know, we're going to use some battery to stabilise the grid. You know, they can't explain it all, so they go, oh, well, I better not say anything because it's all mm. too complicated. Yeah. So I think that's where, you know, just getting the idea to, of that the government really needs to declare the emergency is an important one. But I'm, I'm not saying, yeah, of course it's... I mean, our brains respond to pictures and stories. I think, mm. of course, we should tell a story about how it might look. But, look, the other thing is there's a very clever thing that big corporations do when they don't want regulation. And they did it with the um, with container deposits. When they didn't want container deposits in America, yep. they launched a campaign to keep America beautiful. Mm. Uh, it, the problem is not, you know, some problem with too many containers and no container deposits. It's that you are not... You know, you the consumer you, keep the consumer, mucking up the, the keep method, mucking yeah. up the, the yeah. beautiful pristine landscape. So you know, I think it's true that we should do what we can one by one. Of mm. course, it makes us feel better. Of course, we should. But um, I'm old enough to be a feminist from you know 1970 or so, and we had a thing that we said then. We used to say, "Beware, beware the individual solution." Yep. Mm. that you spend so much energy on not shaving your legs or getting rid of your bra or doing all this stuff that you really don't feel like doing but you sort of should just, you know, Mm. to be part of whatever. And you use all your energy on these individual things Mm. and you have no energy left to campaign for equal pay or something like Mm. that. So I think, you know, by all means do individual things but don't be tricked into thinking that individual things will fix it and don't wear yourself out doing individual things when you could use that energy to win a big political battle. Yeah. And yet at the same time, the individual effort that might raise somebody into becoming that positive influential leader that's required, that's a really interesting space right there as well because you, you do need... God, there's these clowns on the CCTV out there. Uh, you do, you can't, I feel as though you need a heady combination of the two because you, you do need um, large-scale mass group action, but at the same time you also need almost like those uh, Churchillian-type individuals who will inspire... 
yeah. a group to keep yeah. going in adversity. Yeah, look, I, I agree with you, and uh, I, I was just sitting here wondering uh, how much action we need to have find that politician that's brave enough out there to say, I'm going to bring in petrol rationing because that's an emergency measure. I, can and I put something in on that? I feel as though at the moment, have you noticed what petrol costs at the moment? Yeah. Petrol rationing will kind of become self-perpetuating as it starts to move towards yeah, two bucks too a litre. Well, the whole thing's too slow. Yeah. I mean, we, we are trying to turn a luxury cruise ship off course with a, an <laughs> iceberg, and, it, and as quick as we can possibly <laughs> make it, it's still going to be probably too slow. But I feel as though that, yeah, well, it's a, a probably different discussion. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's related, though, because yeah. I think the thing about an emergency response is, you know, when the river is flooding... You know, everybody's out there with the sandbags. It's not that mm. the rich are still sitting with their feet up in front of the TV and the poor are out there with the sandbags. Mm. But, you know, often climate action looks like, well, you know, we'll bring in a carbon price or something mm. and poor people will stop driving because they can't afford it anymore and rich will just keep on driving. Mm. Um, you know, the thing about a proper emergency response is it's fair. Mm. And and then people feel much, much more happy and satisfied to be part of it. They don't feel like they're sort of getting ripped off. Yep. So I think that, that it is an important thing. Yeah. Well, a forest fire doesn't care if the house is a mansion or a hovel. It mm. just takes it out. But it brings people together. Like people typically, in times of crisis, mm. as long as they're not completely panicking, as long as there's a clear idea of what you can do with the sandbags or the, you know, the, the fire break or the evacuation, as long as you know some idea of what you can practically do, people work together well. Mm. Yep. No, it brings out the best in people. It brings out bravery. It does indeed. Green in the Apocalypse has been the show. Jed has been uh, panelling like a champion. Bush has been my name. Our guest this evening, Jane Morton. Before we wrap it up, Jane, can you quickly tell us about Extinction Rebellion? Well, as well as the amazing climate mobilisation in America, there's a new group started up in England or in the United Kingdom called the Extinction Rebellion. They are calling on the UK government to declare a climate emergency. And they're going to rebel. They're going to start the rebellion on November 17th, so watch out for them. I just well. implore people to read this. Yep. And also um, uh, David Spratt's... Uh, what Lies Beneath. What Lies Beneath, which is now out. And um, get hold of... Just read these two documents, and if you're not convinced... Lord uh, help I'll, you! I'll be surprised. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.